Okay, welcome everyone. Um, hopefully, we'll do this every Monday night for the next few weeks until Yom Kippur. Um, okay. If you open the Maxis to page 176. 176. Thank you. Um, so, I'm going to talk today about Kea the blowing of the Shoifer. Now, the truth is that um, the blowing of the Shoifer, we could do a five-part series just on that. However, I, the primary objective of this series is to be as familiar as possible, uh, to be A, as familiar as possible with the master, so it doesn't just feel like I'm turning pages and not understanding the context of what's going on and not knowing what's coming next, etc., just to be more comfortable with the master. And also to have, perhaps, perhaps to have some uh, area pointers some areas to, you know, ideas to think about, etc. as we go along. So, of course, Tkia Shoifer, besides, um, first of all, Tkia Shoifer is mitzvah, Hayoim B'Shoifer, the Gemara says, that the mitzvah, there's more machzorim in the, under the Oren Kodesh, if you want. Um, there should be enough here, there's another source sheet, if people want. There's another two copies of source sheets. Peniel? Um... The mitzvah of the day is shoifer. So there's many things we do on Rosh Hashanah. We should say Malchi Yisachern is shoifer. We say Tashlich with your apple dipped in honey. All the things. But the mitzvah of the day is the mitzvah of shoifer. And in fact, in the Torah, Rosh Hashanah is called Yoim Teruah, the day of shofar blowing. Um, and of course, besides that, um, the mitzvah of shoifer also is integrated into the machzer. So it's part of the davening, and it's done at various stages. Um, um, in the davening. Now, you would think that you would blow shoifer first thing in the morning, but we don't, and I'm not going to go into why we don't right now, but we do blow shoifer between chakras and musaf, or before musaf. So, what I would like to do today is next time we'll talk more about musaf and why things are in the order, why the how the shofar integrates with Musaf and why Musaf is in the order that it is, etc. I want to talk about page 176 today. If you look at page 176, it has here the order of the shofar blowing that we do before Musaf. These are called the Tkiyas Miyushav, the Tkiyas that are done sitting down. Now, of course, we all stand up for the, shofar, for the blowing of the shofar, um, but the reason why it's called the tkiyas that are done sitting down is because it differentiates them from the, the tkiyas, the shofar blowings that are done during the re- repetition of the amida, during the quiet amida, according to the Chabad custom as well, um, which are done you're during the amida, so you're for sure standing. So therefore this one is sort of relative to that called the sitting one. It's just a way to differentiate them. So these are the primary tkiyas which we do and thereby fulfill the mitzvah, the biblical commandment to hear the shofar on the, on the, on the day of, um, of Rosh Hashanah. So, if you look at this, we have here 30 koilas, 30 sounds of shofar. Tkiyah, shvarim teruah, tkiyah, that's 4, times 3 is 12. And then we have tkiyah, shvarim, tkiyah, 3 times, that's 9. And tkiyah, teruah, tkiyah, 3 times, that's another 9. Brings you to a total of 13 Shofar blast. Thirty, sorry, thirty shofar blasts. So where do these? Sh- th- wh- wh- where do we get to the number thirty and these particular th- th- this particular thing? What what what, are, what is this about? So if you look at page one of your source sheets, um, text one, and all the texts on the besides the last page, which is just English, 
Um, all the other pages have everything in Hebrew and English, and I've numbered it 1a, 1b, and so on. So, if you look at text 1, this is the first um, sif of Shulchan Aruch, of the Altarab Shulchan Aruch on this chapter. Uh, Emmanuel, make yourself comfortable. Oh. <laughs> um, how many shofar blasts is a person obliged to hear on Rosh Hashanah? The answer is nine. Tkia, Teruah, Tkia, three times. So on Rosh Hashanah, the biblical mitzvah is to hear the shofar, to, he- to hear nine sounds of the shofar. One of the nine, you have to do a tekiah, a teruah, and a tekiah. Uh, just, uh, is everyone familiar with what the names of the sounds are? Tekiah is the long blast to... Shvarim is the broken up blast. One, two, three, sort of semi-short ones. Two, two, two. And teruah is um, the very short ones. Two, 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 a minimum of nine. Um, that, that, those are the, the names, so we have to remember the names. So uh, the, the mitzvah is to hear nine blasts, a tekiah, a teruah, and a tekiah, three times, so that's nine. How do we know this? This concept is derived as follows. The term teruah is mentioned three times in the Torah with regard to the month of Tishrei, twice in connection with Rosh Hashanah, and once in connection with Yom Kippur of the Jubilee year. So on the Jubilee year, which we don't do nowadays, we did that in a time when most of the... Jewish nation is living in the Holy Land and there is a temple, there is a mitzvah of Yoival, recorded in the Torah in the beginning of Parshas Bahar in um, Bamidbar chap- chapter um, I don't know, but towards the end of the book of Bamidbar chapter 30 approximately um, there's a mitzvah that on the 50th year is the Jubilee year and one of the mitzvahs of the Jubilee year is that all the slaves go f- are set free when are the slaves set free? So from Rosh Hashanah, from the first day of the year, they already get to relax, but they're not actually set free until Yom Kippur. And Yom Kippur, the shofar is blasted by the Bezdin, and that shofar blasting is what sets the, the slaves free. So we have the word teruah mentioned three times in the Torah, twice in connection with Rosh Hashanah, to blow a teruah on Rosh Hashanah, and once in connection with Yovah. The oral tradition teaches that the verses are interrelated, and thus it is as if all three mentions of the term Teruah relate to each occasion. So even though it only says Teruah twice with Rosh Hashanah and once with regards to Yovel, we actually consider it as if it would say Teruah three times with regard to Rosh Hashanah and three times with regards to Yovel. So let's take Yovel out of the question, out of the equation right now, because we're talking about Rosh Hashanah for all intents and purposes. It says Teruah three times um, about Rosh Hashanah. However, now, whenever a teruah is sounded, it must be preceded by a long, plain shofar blast, which we call a tekiah, and followed by a long, plain shofar blast. These long, plain blasts are called tekios, without qualification. What that means is, because the word tekiah means blowing, so often we would just say tekiah shofar means the blowing of the shofar. We're not referring specifically to the sound of tekiah versus the sound of teruah. We're just sounding the shofar is called Tekiah, but actually both the word tekiah and the word trua can in generally mean shofar blowing. But then when we're talking specifically about what sounds to make, tekiah is the long, plain blast, and trua is the broken up one. This pattern is derived from the verse, v'ha'avarto shofar trua, you shall blast the shofar. The initial verb, v'ha'avarto, to pass, implies that a long, simple blast should be sounded. The sequence of the Hebrew words implies that this long, simple blast should be followed by a teruah. And after mentioning teruah, that verse states, Ta'aviru shofar, you shall again sound the shofar. This implies that after the teruah, 
a long, simple blast should also be sounded. So the word la'avir, to shofar, ta'aviru shofar, which means to sound the shofar, which it meant, says before the word trua and again after the word trua, that teaches us that you have to precede and follow the trua with a tekiah. This sequence applies to every tour, whether of the Jubilee year of Rosh Hashanah, for the lessons applying to one or applying to another. So, we have three times Teruah in regards to Rosh Hashanah. Each Teruah has to be preceded by a tkia and followed by a tkia. So this brings us to a sum total of nine sounds. Tkia, Teruah, Tkia, three times. Okay, so we've got to nine. How do we get to thirty? So, now we have to turn to page 2, text 2, which is the following Sif in the Rebbe Shulchan Aruch, in this um, chapter 590. The term Teruah used in the Torah is rendered as Yubava in Aramaic. The Aramaic, oh, Rabbi Alan, welcome. Um... Baruch Hashem, we've ran out of source sheets, so if somebody would be so kind as to share. Um, in the Machnerim on the right side over there, Ariel. As opposed to the wrong side. As opposed to the wrong side. Yes, they're not on the wrong side, they're on the left side. They're on the right side. It's like in England, where I come from, where if you drive on the left side of the road, you're on the right side of the road. If you drive on the right side of the road, you're on the wrong side of the road. Okay. Um, <laughs> Can you explain that again, please? No. <laughs> okay. So the term Teruah, we're on text, page 2, text 2 in English. The term Teruah used in the Torah is rendered in Aramaic as Yubava. So we have the Unclus Targum, the translation of the Torah into Aramaic, which is printed in virtually every Chumash. The Gemara Megillah says that this Targum was actually um, also divinely um, given to, at Sinai. This verb appears in the verse, and sister's mother gazed through the window and wailed. So in the, in the Haftorah for Parshas Beshalach, we have the story uh, from the book of Shoftim, the book of Judges, where um, Barak and, uh, and, and Dvora instructs Barak to go and kill the army of battle with Sisra and kill Sisra himself. And at the end of that story, there's the Shiraz Dvora, the song which Dvora uh, composed, to th- praising Hashem for the miracles that happened. So the, towards the end of there it says, That Sisra's mother gazed through the window, w- window and wailed. So the word there is she wailed, which is the same as the Aramaic translation for the word trua. This implies that Yavava resembles a sound that a person emits when he weeps and moans. Just a short interjection, I just remembered as I was saying this, that last year I saw somewhere um, I saw somewhere an explanation why it would be that we learn out blowing chauffeur from the mother of Sisra crying. What's the connection? I mentioned it in the Sunday year, but I don't remember what I said. So I'll have to look it up in my notes. And you'll all come back next Monday and you'll find out. Um, so so, 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 th- so this implies that Yavam resembles a sound that a person emits when he weeps and moans. However, there is room. So we know that the sound of trua is something to do with weeping and crying. That's the Torah says trua. The Torah says make it kia, then a trua, then it kia three times, so nine. Um, but we don't know. We know that a trua is somehow related to crying. 
Okay. Now there is room to question whether the above is spoken of here is the sound made by a sick person who groans or extended, what you might call a krechts, as he issues one groan after the other, prolonging them somewhat. The root that describes this is gonach, groaning. Or perhaps Yubaba resembles the sound of a person who sobs and mourns, emitting a very short sound in quick succession. So when somebody is crying hysterically, they are shorter sounds in quick succession, and when somebody is groaning, they're longer sounds. The word that describes this is yolil. So are we gonach, are we groaning, or are we yolil, are we sobbing? Or perhaps it refers to both of them in turn. When the sob, with the sobbing following the groaning, for people who cry, commonly groan, and then the groan can sort of develop into a cry, into a sob. Accordingly, our sages ordained the following practice. In order to accomplish, uh, sorry, in order to accommodate all of the possible explanations of the term trua, a series comprising tkiya shvarim trua tkiya is sounded three times, so perhaps trua means both groaning and sobbing. A series comprising tkiya shvarim tkiya is then sounded three times, so perhaps trua means groaning alone, and if so, the sobbing sounds i.e. our would constitute an interruption between the Torah required by the Torah and the Tkiah that follows it. Whereas the Torah requires that the Torah be immediately followed by a long, simple blast without any interception of any other shofar blast, which is not long and simple. Finally, a series comprising Tkiah, Torah, Tkiah has sounded three times, so perhaps Torah is the... Anyone? Staccato. Staccato. Okay. What does that word mean? It's Italian, and it means um, short. Short succession. Okay, sobbing alone and the groans in the series comprising Tkiyah Shram Tkiyah would constitute an interruption between the Trua and the Tkiyah that precedes it. Okay, so let's just uh, say this again for um, to get this clear. We have we know from the pasuk of Sisra's mother weeping that Tkiyah is somehow related to crying. Now we know of two types of crying. There could be groaning and there could be sobbing, and there could also be a sob, sorry, a groan, which then. Um, develops into a sob. So there are three possibilities as to what Teruah means. So therefore, in order to accomplish the mandate of the Torah to sound Teruah three times, and each time precede it and follow it with a Tkiah, we have to first do Tkiah followed by a Shvarim Teruah, the groan and the sob, and followed by the Tkiah. And we do that three times. Now, we haven't yet covered all our bases, because that if, if the Torah implied by the Torah is both, so then we're, we're good. But if the Torah implies the sobbing, the groaning, the, the, what we call the shvarim, so you've done your tkiah, you've done your shvarim, what are you supposed to do, do next? Immediately following, you have to do a tkiah. But you've now interrupted in between the shvarim and the tkiah and done a teruah. So now you've separated the shvarim from the following tkiah. And the Torah says we've got to do the teruah and immediately precede it by a tkiah and immediately follow it by a tkiah. And therefore we do the second set of tkiah, shvarim, tkiah. Um, and, then, uh, and then finally we do the third set of tkiah, teruah, tkiah, in case that is what implied but with the teruah of the uh, Torah. So even though the Torah only mandates us to do nine sounds, we actually end up with 27 sounds because we're doing it three times to cover all our bases. 
Now, those 27 sounds, we call them 30 sounds, because the Shvarim Teruah we count as two. We're doing the Shvarim Teruah because perhaps the combination of both is what is implied by the Torah saying the words Teruah, but when we count in the Machsa how many sounds there are, you're going to count 30, because that is a combination of two. And of course, we have a grand total throughout the davening of 100 sounds, and there is the significance of the number 100, which we'll perhaps talk about another time. Okay, so hopefully it's clear now how we got to these 30 sounds. It's clear that we're unclear. Is, is it, have, any, have any groups made a decision that they, they have decided that definitely it's not this one and they only blow 18 times or 9 times? Or okay, so Eric is touching on a very important question, and that is, well, how did this come to be? Like, I mean, there's got to be a way to determine this. So I'm going to get to that question in a moment. I believe that's, that's sort of what you're touching upon. Like, uh, right. So, the Gemara says, Askin Rebavohu, I don't have the Gemara here, Askin Rebavohu Bikisaria, Rebavohu instituted to blow the 30 sounds, sorry, actually, well, actually the Gemara says, Rebavohu instituted to do Shvarim Teruah, to do both, so that would be the, ten, uh, the 12 sounds, um, but then in the Hampshire, in the continuation of the Gemara there, it's clear that the Gemara says you have to do all 30. So there's no community, like the Rambam elaborates on in his introduction to his magnum opus, the Yad HaZaka, that anything that is recorded by the Halachic, till the Chassimus Talmud, till the end of the Talmud, that is binding upon all Jewish communities throughout the world. So Sfardim and Ashkenazim, Chassidim, all groups, everyone, um, does these 30 sounds. This is Medina de Gemara, and nobody today has the authority to change this. Later on, we'll see there are si- slightly different customs between different communities as to how to do the shofar blowings during, which are during Musaf. First of all, um, Ashkenazim do not do them during the silent Shemina only during the repetition. And Chassidim, and I believe Sfardim, do them also. Anybody familiar with the Sfardim in Haq? I believe Sfardim also do it during the quiet um, Amida. Also, which sounds are done during the Amida, which of the different types of sounds are done, and in what sequence. There's also various, there's I think four different customs total. Um, um, but again, we're not going to cover that today. I'm glad I'm providing some some uh, some humor. I would like uniformity. Sorry? Uniformity within the Jewish people. It's always important. So, that, so now we're, today we're focusing on the part, that, part that's uniform, page 176. This is exactly the same in all um, communities. Now, so, the obvious question is, like Eric alluded to, well, what do you mean we don't know? How could you not know? Like this the discussion can't end just because we decided, I mean, even though we're going to do it, there has to be opinions, right? Does the Rambam still expound upon what he believes? No. no. So, so, because that's, because, well, the Gemara says that we don't know. The Gemara says we don't know what, what um, uh, um, I can show you afterwards if you want in the, in the Gemara. The Gemara says we don't know what to do, and therefore we don't know what to do. So once, if, if, once, in other words, a doubt that emerges after the time of the Talmud, in the times of the Go'inim and the Rishonim, so then you could say, oh, well, the Rambam has his opinion, and this one has his opinion. But something that's in the Talmud, if the Talmud says we don't know, then no one knows. That, that, that's it. The, the Maskana is that we don't know, and therefore we do it like this. Um, the problem, the, 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 big, the big problem with understanding this is that how does such a doubt come to be? I mean, blowing shofar is a mitzvah in the Torah, which was done every single year from the giving of the Torah. Uh, how do you forget how to, like, how do you forget? So the truth is, this is a question which applies, which comes up with other mitzvahs as well. 
Um, for example, I mean, we have famously every single morning, many people put on two pairs of tefillin, Rashi and Rabbeinu Time. Why do you put on two pairs of tefillin? Because there is a machlekas, there's actually four opinions, but we do two of them, um, as to what the order of the parish is. There's four paragraphs, four <coughs> par- portions of the Torah placed in the tefillin. What order do you do them? Um... So, again, uh, we've been putting on film for forever. Like, how do we suddenly forget how to do it? There's a similar story in the Gemara. The Gemara Mtsachim tells a story that one year, Erev Pesach fell on Shabbos, and they didn't know um, if they're allowed to... What, what do you do? Do you bring a carbon Pesach when it's Shabbos? Are you allowed to shech the carbon on Shabbos? And the Gemara already over there somewhat addresses this question, like, what does that mean? Like, Pesach falls on... Erev Pesach falls on Shabbos every few years indefinitely, so like nobody remembers ever. So that's a question which we're not going to address all those questions tonight, but that's a, a question which comes up over here. How can we not know what Torah to do? So if you turn to page 4, source, source number 4, and this is a quote from the Rambam in the laws of Shofa Sukha Lulav, that's, uh, the Shofa Sukha Lulav are in one set of laws, that's why we mentioned Sukha Lulav, it's, this is about Shofa, chapter 3, um, subsection 2, Halacha Base. Um, I'll read it out of the English, you have the Hebrew on top. This Torah that the Torah discusses, says the Ramam, due to the many years of exile, mm, not a very good translation, we are unsure what it is. Okay, I, I'm going to... Trua? Another, again, the, the Torah says you have to do a Tkia, a Trua, and a Tkia. Three times, so that's a total of nine. And the way we got to 30 was because we're not sure what the Torah means when it says Trua. It doesn't mean or does it mean or does it mean a combination of both. So the Ramam, I, I actually didn't even check this translation, I just copied and pasted it. But um, the, uh, the, the Ramam says, Nistapet lanu basofik, we have a doubt to it, lefi hashanim, because of the many years of exile, v'roiv hagolios, because of the many years, v'roiv hagolios and the many uh, exiles. So he's, he ba- the Ramam basically is trying to address the obvious question, he doesn't explicitly ask it, and he says that, Yes, the Jewish people wandered around, were separated, there was isolation, there was famine, there was all sorts of crazy things going on in the history of the Jewish people. And by the time the Gemara came to record this in Babylon in, what century was the Talmud? Um, in the, in the, I mean, almost 2,000 years ago, yeah? In the, towards the beginning of the common era. I'm not so good with the years exactly. Um, so, so by that point, there was this confusion. We didn't know how to do it. Okay, so that's the Rambam. And if you take the Rambam's approach, then indeed, perhaps, you know, when Mashiach comes and then we have a complete Torah and everything is as it's supposed to be, we will then determine the truth and we will no longer be doing 30, we'll just be doing the 9 or the 12, whichever one will sort of turn out to be the truth. And this is the way many of the Paschim understand this. And there's all sorts of, I mean, as we go through, and some of them we'll have time to mention, some of them not, maybe some of them we'll talk about in the Sunday morning classes. There's all sorts of nafkeminus um, all sorts of practical applications to how you understand how this doubt came to be. However, there is an innovative idea, which is originally suggested, written by Rev. Haigoin, um, who was in one of the Goinim. So they are before the Rishonim. They are immediately, almost immediately following the time of the Talmud. The Goinim, they are befo- before the Rishonim. They are more sort of supreme or more authori- authoritative. And 
Um, this is also in page three, source three, page three. Um, and he writes this in a letter. Th- th- I'm sorry, this is not. This is a, this is the way the Alter Rebbe sort of adapts what he says. Uh, but it, this is quoted by many of the authorities going back to the Rishonim. Many of the the Rosh and the Re- many of the Rishonim quote this Rav Haigoyin's letter. Um, and it seems clear that Rav Haigoyin's letter was written at least in part to defend Chazal to its critics. And uh, the critics of Chazal, of the Karoim, the critics of Chazal's understanding of the Torah, they always found things to um, use to say that the way we understand the Torah, the written Torah, is incorrect. And this was one of the things which they were talking about. Well, how could you not know? So Rabbi Vo actually suggested that actually um, there was no, there's no doubt whatsoever. Actually, um, Teruah... We know for sure what truah means. Truah means any of these three things. You could either do the sobbing or the groaning, or you could do both. Whichever one you do, whichever one tickles your fancy, um, is in fulfillment of the Torah's mitzvah of shofar. Now, he says, what happened was, different communities spread out and developed communities in different areas, and different communities developed a different way to do it. So some communities were doing shvarim truah, and some communities were doing shvarim, and some communities were doing truah, and they were all legitimate. However, it didn't look good. It doesn't look good like Rabdan, so the Chazal also liked religious, what did you call it? Uniformity. Uniformity. Yeah? We like uniformity. We don't like it when um, some, peop- one peop- some people are doing one thing and some people are doing another thing. And in fact, nowadays it's difficult for us to, to, to imagine this because we live in such a, is, is the right word cosmopolitan, where there's so many diverse, diff- diverse so it's just a diverse society. So, with it, I mean, just here across the street, we have a Sephardi shul uh, where they're doing all, many minhagim uh, very different than us. And uh, you have Chassidim and Ashkenazim and uh, all sorts of communities living in one city. It used to be that every city had its minhag and nobody was allowed to divert for, uh, to, to, to do anything different than the minhag of the city. But as Lefi, like in the, in the words of the Rambam, Lefi, Reif Hashanim, Eirech Hashanim, Reif is over the years and the various travels of the Jewish people, it sort of happened that people from different communities came to one place and kept their previous minhagim, and that's how it developed that in Chicago and in every Jewish city, in every many cities, there's all sorts of communities. And, I mean, for example, w- w- one time where we see this uh, on Cholomoyed, so some people wear it on Cholomoyed and some people don't wear it on Cholomoyed. Now, if you look at Shulchan Aruch, it's very strict that if we wear it on Cholomoyed, then you must wear it on Cholomoyed, everyone must wear it on and if you don't wear it for the Nechalamayit, then nobody's allowed to wear it for the Nechalamayit. However, in many shuls today, there are some who are strict about this, but in many shuls today, for example, in this shul right here, the Chabad Minag is not to wear it for the but if somebody comes in and wearing tefillin, he's more than welcome. Nobody says anything to him, and vice versa. If I go, I mean, I don't know, I'm going to assume at Yeshurun, the official Minag of the shul is that you do wear it for the Nechalamayit. Is that correct? Anybody know? But... Um, uh, if I would go there and not wear tefillin, nobody's going to say anything to me. There are some shuls who are who are strict about this, but generally speaking, nowadays people are not strict about this. And this is just another example how we see how these things happen. Anyway, so back to the case of Rabbi Vohu. His Rabbi Vohu instituted, like I mentioned before, that you have to do all thirty of these. Rabbi Vohu says no. It says Rabbi Vohu, and there was no doubt. Rabbi Vohu just wanted uniformity. He wanted everyone to be doing. Chazal wanted everyone to be doing the same thing. 
And therefore they said, we don't want to rule out, we don't want to say you have to do it like this community, we have to do it like this community. So they said, let's do all of them. Okay, let's read it inside. So, Multiculturalism. So this is, um, th- this is a discussion, um, this is a discussion which is relevant to something about how to do, uh, w- which sounds to blow during the Musaf, during the Amidah, which we do later. So that's the context that it comes in. So let's start from the second paragraph. According to sp- scriptural law, th- th- this, is, this is presenting the opinion of a Haigai. According to scriptural law, both our Shvarim and our Trua are referred to as Trua. No matter what one does, whether he sounds Shvarim alone or Trua alone, he has fulfilled his obligation, or both together. <coughs> Thus, in the earlier generations, people in some places customarily sounded Shvarim, and in others, people customarily sounded Trua. Both these and those, both communities, fulfilled their obligation according to scriptural law. Nevertheless, because this diversity was perceived as a conflict of opinion in the eyes of the common people, the Caesars saw, saw fit to ordain that the entire Jewish people follow a single practice so that there would not be any divergence that, they would, appe- that would appear to people at large to be a conflict of opinion. Hence, they ordained that there be sounded three series of Tkir Shvarim Tkir, three series of Tkir Shvarim Tkir, and three series of Tkir Tru Tkir, so there would be no doubt among people at large because of the different practices. Okay, period. That's, uh, that's what's relevant to us. The rest is... Okay, so th- those are basically the two approaches to how the doubt came to be, and is it is it really? You know, that, that's sort of the two approaches to to Eric's question. Okay, so uh, we've sort of covered the the the, the important parts of the order of Tkias Miyushev. Now, there's of course many many law laws regarding the Tkias. The, the tkias how and the shvarim and the trua, how long they have to be, lechatchila, how long they could be b'diyevad, meaning at one point you say if you did it longer or shorter than a certain amount of time each note, um, is it invalid and you have to go back? How far back do you have to go? When are you allowed to take a breath? When are you supposed to take a breath? When are you not allowed to take a breath? There's many, many laws. If you look at it just on the first page of the source, you'll see it's chapter 590 of Shulchan Aruch, um, has how many parts? 21 21 sifim, 21 um, uh, halachas in this chapter, all about them. So some of them we may discuss in the upcoming Sunday morning breakfast classes, to which you're all invited to attend. Um, we're not going to go into all those details now. But what I want to do now, for the remaining uh, approximately half an hour, is... Sorry? So during Elul, this is what we, what we do. No, during Elul, the Chabad custom is during Elul, that we do one of each. Tkir Shoram Tkir, Tkir Shoram Tkir, most other communities just do one of the first ones. Most communities do four sounds every day of, of Elul. The Chabad and perhaps some other Chassidim do ten. Okay, so any, before we move on, any, any questions at this point? No, okay. So what I want to do is move on a bit to the reasons behind the mitzvah of blowing shofar. So... Why do we blow the shofar? So first and foremost, why do we blow shofar? Because Hashem said so. In fact, the Gemara even paraphrases this. But the first, any mitzvah, the primary reason that we do it is because Hashem said so. Um, 
Nevertheless, there are reasons suggested for the mitzvah of Shofar. So, first of all, turn to page 5, source number 6. This is sort of the middle of a quote, which, so to speak, Hashem says to the Jewish people. And recite before me on Rosh Hashanah verses that mention kingships, remembrances, and shofar oaths, which we'll discuss next week. Those are the three unique blessings to the Musaf of Rosh Hashanah. Kingships, so that you will crown me as king over you. Remembrances, so that you should remember, your remembrance will rise before me for good. And with what will the remembrance rise? It, oh gosh, it, it will rise with, there must be a word or something missing here. It will rise, it will, with, with, will rise with the chauffeur. Hold on, I know what's going on. There's a sentence into something here. It, sorry, you have to read it like this. With what will re- the remembrance rise? It will rise with the chauffeur. Similarly, Rabbi Vohar said, why does one sound a blast with a chauffeur made from a ram's horn on Rosh Hashanah? The Holy One, blessed be He, said, sound before me, a, sound a blast before me with a chauffeur made from a ram's horn, so that I will remember for you the binding of Isaac, the son of Abraham, in whose stead a ram was sacrificed, and I will ascribe it to you as if you had bound yourselves before me. So, Rabbi says, why do we blow the shofar of Rosh Hashanah? Because the shofar of an isle, of a ram, by the way, a shofar is kosher even from other animals, but it does say, and we do try to blow a shofar from a ram, specifically for this reason, which is why those very long curly shofars that are popular, and you can, people go to Israel and buy them and bring them back, and they're very popular, and they have a, you know, so those are not, they're kosher, but they're not the ideal shofar to use for Rosh Hashanah. The ideal shofar is to use the, the small one, which is the horn of a ram. Why a ram? Because the Akedah of Yitzchak, the binding of Isaac, happened on Rosh Hashanah, which is also the reason why, reason why the binding of Isaac is the Torah reading for which day of Rosh Hashanah? The first day. The first day of Rosh Hashanah, sorry, the second day of Rosh Hashanah. We read the binding of Isaac, the Akedah. Um, and what happened at the end of the story of the Akedah? Um, he's told, uh, the angel calls out to Avram and tells him not to shecht Yitzchak, not to kill his son, rather to... Uh, and then Avram sees the ram which is caught in the thicket and he brings that up instead of his son. So says the Gemara, says Rebbevo, who incidentally is the same Rebbevo who instituted the 30 blasts, um, and he says that um, Hashem says, Sound before me a chauffeur from a ram so that I will remember the binding of Isaac in whose stead a ram was sacrificed, and I'll ascribe it to you as if you had been bound yourselves before me, and this will be sort of a schus for the Jewish people on the Day of Judgment. Steve, do you want to ask something? Uh, I guess I'll reveal my ignorance at domestic animals, but the long, curly shofarim are not from rams? No, they're from deer. It's from an ibex. Ibex. Ibex is a type of deer? It's an animal that's... I think it's in the mountains. Uh, okay, for some reason I thought it was from India, but it's definitely not from a ram. A ram has a short... Oh, I thought it was just from like an old ram with a long horn. No. no. Uh, a, ram, a ram, this is how, this part, the thick part over here, this is the one that's connected to the ram's head. Um, and, I mean, they're bent, you can't really tell, but, you know, there's one on the right and one on the left. Ideally, we, I think it's, a, I, th- I believe it says you're supposed to have them bend towards the right, but when they make them, they make them warm, and then they're flexible, so they could bend them whichever direction they want. Um, oh, but th- so that's not necessarily 
natural shape as it's removed from the ram? No. I mean, there, there is one. I mean, you can see a ram. It is similar to this shape, but it's not exactly this they, shape. They, they sort of, they make it neat, you know? I mean, first of all, they cut off the ends, yeah? No, and they drill out the hole, but I'm yeah. saying it's... There's no brain sticking out. Right, no. This is, this is there's no th brain in it, there's cartilage. When you, when you get them initially, that it's stuff inside is cartilage, it's not brain. They're all external to the animal's head. So it's attached to it, it's not like an integral part. So, uh, so they drill it out, and um, yeah, but, it, but the, this chauffeur, you do sometimes see Very funny shapes in chauffeurs. You do sometimes. Okay, so it, does, it doesn't have to be a ram's horn then when you blow. It doesn't have to be a ram's horn. It has to be. Uh, it has to. Be, there is criteria. It can't be the horn of any animal, because there's a carrot and a chauffeur. There's two. I forget now which animals are have a kosher. I think. I don't think you could take the horn of an ox, for example. I think is no good. Because the ibex is a wild goat. Is what this says. It's a wild goat. It's a goat. Uh -huh. <coughs> how do you, How do you spell the word ibex? I b e x. Uh -huh. So it has to come from a, a goat. No, it has to come. It has to. It's that long cool. It, it's right? it's about what it's about what the inside of the. Yeah. I mean, the, those long ones are not naturally curly either. They're just long things, and then they make them into this curl, um, as you can see in that picture over there. Um, but uh, it doesn't on the animal. It doesn't have that neat little curl exactly down the middle. <laughs> um, but um, I. I there's, a, there's two types of horns. One is called a carrot and one is called a chauffeur. And it depends. The, the, sh the chauffeur has whatever you said was inside the cartilage. horn. The cartilage. So that's what the chauffeur has. There are, there are animals that have different, the, the horn has some sort of something different inside, and those are not kosher for a chauffeur. Um, I, believe right, a deer, yeah. I believe a deer's horn is also kosher for a chauffeur, if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, so that's what the Gemara says. Now, Turn back to page 4, and we have here the Rambam in the laws of Teshuvah. The Rambam says, the Rambam is, the Rambam is not essentially talking here about um, Rosh Hashanah, he's talking about Teshuvah in general. And then he says like this, Notwithstanding, it's in chapter 3, Halacha Dalot, Notwithstanding that the blowing of the ram's horn and trumpet of Rosh Hashanah is a scriptural statute, it's Xeris Akasa. So first and foremost, like I said before, why do you blow Shofar Rosh Hashanah? Because Hashem said so, because it's a scriptural statute. Says the Ramam, notwithstanding that, its blast is symbolic, as if it is saying, Ye that sleep, bestir yourselves from your sleep, and ye slumbering emerge from your slumber, examine your conduct, con conduct turn in repentance, and remember your Creator. They that forget the truth because of the vanities of the times, who err all of their years by pursuing vanity and idleness, which are neither of neither benefit nor salvation, care for your souls. Ye, care for your souls, improve your ways and your tendencies. Let each of you abandon his evil path and his thoughts which are not pure. Right? So the Rambam says that the shofar is first and foremost the decree of Hashem, but it is also a wake-up call, quite literally, wake up from your slumber being carried away in um, your, whatever it is, your vanities, and um, get, get focused on serving Hashem. And then continues about Shuvah, and towards the end he gets back to Rosh Hashanah and says that it's customary in the time between Rosh Hashanah and Kippur to um, be extra meticulous with Sadaka and other mitzvahs um, um, because that's the time of Teshuvah. In fact, there's one specific... In general, people do Chumras, things that they don't do all year round, um, to do on Rosh Hashanah 
between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Uh, one example that's mentioned in Shulchan Aruch, so for example, many people who are not makbid on Chal of Yisrael year-round, for example, during those that week will only have Chal of Yisrael. The example that's mentioned in Shulchan Aruch is Pas Yisrael, Pas Palter. Uh, halachically, it's permissible Halakhically, it's forbidden to, to, eat, to eat bread that's baked by a non-Jew. However, if that's only if it's baked by a non-Jewish, by a private person. If it's made in a commercial bakery for sale, then strictly speaking, it's permissible to eat. It's called paspalta. Again, of course, provided that the ingredients are all kosher, that is permissible. Many people are machmer all year round to only eat things, where, uh, breads and cereals and all things which are only pas Yisrael. Um, it's a chumrah. It's not. It's not required, but it's mentioned in Shulchan Aruch that uh, an advisable chumrah to do during the week of Rosh Hashanah of Sesame Tshuva is to only eat pas Yisrael. Um, so that's the, okay. So we have here um, on the one hand we have the Gemara says that Tshuva is us calling to Hashem with the ram's horn to remind us um, of the. Um, to remind him, sorry, of the binding of Isaac. And on the other hand, we have the Rambam, who says that it's a wake-up call to us to do Teshuvah. Now, there's a very interesting source on page 5, source number 7, which sort of combines the two, sort of combines the Rambam and the Gemara, puts them into two. Now, this source is the Sefer HaChinuch, which is now published in English by Artscroll, a ten-volume set, which we have in the library over here. Um, and the Sefer HaChinuch, it's actually not clear who the author of it was. Um, it's commonly ascribed to, um, ascribed to is that correct, yes. to Rabbi Aaron HaLevi, the Ra'ah. He goes through in the order of the parishes of the Torah, all the mitzvahs of the Torah, and he goes through basic, basically the laws of the mitzvah and also the reasoning and the underlying um, sort of meaning behind the mitzvahs. And this is, and, and very often, by the way, the Chinuch is very often in line with the Rambam, both in his count of what the 613 mitzvahs are, which there are a number of different opinions how which, which mitzvahs qualify for 613. He follows the Rambam, and in many other things he's similar to the Rambam. So here, this is in Pashas Bahar, in the th- mitzvah Shinlam, the Aleph mitzvah 331, which is the mitzvah to blow the shofar on Yom Kippur of the Jubilee year. And... Um, and he uh, and 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 uh, like we mentioned before, and he, over here he says sort of by the way parenthetically he says like this: the function of this shofar sounding, the shofar sounding on the jubilee year, is not like the function of the shofar sounding on Rosh Hashanah every, every year. For we perform that show for sounding of Rosh Hashanah using a ram's horn in order to focus our minds on the theme of the Akedah of, of our forefather Isaac upon the altar, where he offered up his life in an act of supreme love of Hashem and was replaced with a ram that was sacrificed in his stead. When we hear the sound of the ram's horn on Rosh Hashanah, says the Chinuch, we are inspired to view ourselves as ready to perform such acts of supreme sacrifice, like Isaac did, for the sake of the love of Hashem. As a result of arousing ourselves to this state of readiness, our remembrance will rise before Hashem favorably. The fun of meaning to say that we will be found meritorious before Him on Rosh Hashanah, the day of judgment. Period. Okay, so, sorry, what the Chinuch has done here is actually quite amazing, um, almost acrobatic, how he's intertwined the Gemara and the Rambam. 
Now, those of you who have been coming to the Monday night class in the Siddur, and we discussed, I think we did two or three weeks on the Akedah, and we discussed the message of the Akedah, of mysterious Nefesh, of being completely devoted to Hashem and battle not to have our own wills. And Anyway, we, we, we discussed that for, for, with regards to the Akedah, and why we, why we read the Akedah every morning before davening. So the Chinuch says that the reason we blow the shofar on Rosh Hashanah is because this reminds us, by blowing the ram's horn on Rosh Hashanah, not reminding Hashem, we're reminding us, we're reminding ourselves of the readiness of the mysterious nefesh of Isaac, so that we should internalize within ourselves the mysterious nefesh of Isaac, very similar to why we say that Akedah every single morning. And this mirrors what the Rambam says, that we say that, okay, that, that, we, that we blow the shofar as an awakening call to wake up from our slumber and the vanities of this world. Then he continues that as a result of this, as a result of arousing ourselves to the mysterious nefesh, which is inspired by Yitzchak's mysterious nefesh and the Akedah, this will, this state of readiness on our behalf will cause our remembrance to rise before Hashem favorably that we will be found meritorious before him on this day of judgment, which is mirroring what the Gemara says, that we do this so that Hashem should remember that Akedah Yitzchak and treat us favorably. It's not just, says the Chinuch, that Hashem remembers that Akedah Yitzchak and then the merit of Isaac judges us favorably. But it's that in the merit of Isaac and us resembling, um, emulating the ways of the Messias Nefesh of Isaac, that's what causes us to be remembered favorably by Hashem. So that is um, the primary reasons with the earliest sources that are given for Tukiyah Shreifah. Now, of course, there are many, many reasons given for Tukiyah Shreifah um, throughout, uh, over the course of the Jewish uh, Torah scholarship. Um, And none of these reasons are the reason for the mitzvah. There's actually a halachic, uh, just interesting halachic uh, ramification for this. In the Machzor, if you look back on page 176 in the Machzor, in between each set of 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 of, of the of each set of, of blasts, it says confess silently. Now, what does confess silently mean? So actually, this doesn't mean to say anything verbal. It just means to you take a moment and you just get focused on on on, on confession. So there is a discussion as to whether or not you are allowed to verbally confess. Now, you're not allowed to talk. You're in the middle of the mitzvah. It would be, a, it would be an interruption between the bracha. You made a bracha, blessed is God, the king of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to hear the shofar. You're not, not allowed to talk until you've finished all of these 30 blasts. In fact, ideally, you're not supposed to talk until the end of Musaf when you finished all the 100 blasts. Right? But at least for these 30, you're not allowed to talk. So are you allowed to confess? Now, if you would say that the reason of the Rambam, that the shofar is there to awaken you from your slumber and the vanities of the world and to do teshuva, is the, the reason, or, or even if you would say it is an integral reason of the, for the mitzvah, so then it becomes part of the mitzvah, and then you may be allowed to confess even verbally in the middle of Tkiah shofar, because you're not allowed to interrupt with anything other than the mitzvah, but if teshuvah is part and parcel of the mitzvah, then that would be okay. But that is indeed not the case, because even though the shofar does have this reason to it, it is not an integral part of the mitzvah, and therefore you're not allowed to confess verbally, you just confess silently. Now, um, in the Abar and this is not in your source sheets, um, in the Abar he quotes Rapsad Yugoyim, again from the Goinim, who gives ten reasons 
um, why we blow Shoifer on Rosh Hashanah. And I'll go through them with you quickly, um, just in the time remaining. And as we read them, it will be very obvious to you that some of them cannot possibly be being suggested as the reason for the Tkiah Shoifer. Reason number one is because this is the day in which Hashem created the world. It was the beginning of the creation and became the king over the world. And um, so do the kings. In the beginning of their reign, when the king is coronated, they blow trumpets and shoifers and horns um, to publicize the event. And therefore, because this is the anniversary of the day when Hashem, quote, became king, we blow the shoifer. Now, we'll discuss the next time or the time after how actually this is not just commemorating an event in history that X, thousand year, X amount of years ago on this day, Hashem created the world and became king, but there is actually, it is happening again every year. Every year, Hashem sort of leaves the world and comes back again on Rosh Hashanah. But that's a bit beyond the scope for tonight, and we'll get back to that in the future. Reason number two. Rosh Hashanah is the day one of, of Shuvah, the ten days of repentance, and we blow the shofar to remind us to do Teshuvah, which basically is mirroring what the Rambam says, the wake-up call. Number three, to remind us of Maimed Har Sinai, the giving of the Torah by Har Sinai, where the Torah says there was a Kail shofar chazak Moed, there was a very powerful sound of the shofar blowing. And by remembering Matan Torah, we accept upon us we should accept upon ourselves to do Nasa Vinishma to keep all the mitzvahs of the Torah. Number four, um, to remind us to keep all the words of the prophets, which have been compared to a shofar, as the Pasuk says in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 4, that you heard the sound of the shofar referring to the prophecy of Yechezkel. Number five. And here's why I said it can't possibly be that this is the reason. He says that we blow the shofar to remind us of the churban beis amikdash, of the destruction of the beis amikdash, and the trumpet blowing of the enemies as they came in victorious to Jerusalem. Um, as is referred to the prophet Jeremiah talking about the Jeremiah talking about the churban refers to the shofar of the enemy. And therefore, when we hear the sound of the shofar, we remember the destruction of the temple, and it arouses us to daven for the Geula, to daven for the redemption and the rebuilding of the temple. Number six, to remember the Akedah of Yitzchak, who gave his life for heaven, and so too we should have Mesiris Nefesh, and we should be remembered for good, which actually is mirroring what the Chinuch said, but in fewer words. But once we've read the Chinuch, we can actually see that that is also what Rav Sadiugoin is saying. Number seven, when we hear the sound of the shofar, we become scared, we become fearful. As the Pasuk says, the Prophet Omri says, can the sound of the shofar be blown in, this, blown in the city and the people will not be and not tremble? So it's a rhetorical question. We do tremble when we hear the shofar blowing, and which is also connected to Shuvah. Number eight, to remember that it's a day of judgment. And when it is a day of judgment, the shofar is blown. Number nine, to remember the kibbutz Nidche Yisrael, to, rem- to, to think towards the ingathering of the um, dispersed Jews and to long toward it. As the prophet Isaiah says, It will be on that day when Mashiach comes and great shofar will be sounded, which is, of course, the we borrow that phrase every day three times in our daily prayers, to in one of the blessings of Shemun Asher, sound the great shofar. 
So we're to, towards redemption. And at number 10, he says, is to remember one of the 13 principles of faith is the resurrection of the dead, and to strengthen our belief in this principle of faith. As the prophet Isaiah says, that also in, re, in, in reference to the resurrection of the dead, the prophet uses the word, um, the, the idea of a blowing of the shofar. He then continues to quote a Madrash which says as follows Every year the Satan is Mekatrig he um, accuses not a good translation but the best word that's coming to mind right now um, the Jewish people the whole year the Satan tries to speak bad about the Jewish people to Hashem and Hashem pushes him away. He says, Rosh Hashanah is a day of judgment. Come on Rosh Hashanah. So in Rosh Hashanah, the Satan comes back. It's time to bring his case to prosecute. Prosecute, that's the word. To prosecute the Jewish people. And he's, he brings the son to come and say testimony. The son sees what's going on in the world. And the son should testify to Hashem about all the misdoings of the Jewish people. And indeed, the son does so. Then Hashem turns to the Satan and says, Okay, but, as we read twice, this Shabbos in the Torah, twice in last week's Hedra, it says, you need to have two witnesses. You have to get a second witness. One witness is not believed. Bring another one. And so the Satan goes on his way to find the moon. But, he can't find the moon, because it is covered. It is, The Rosh Hashanah is on the new moon, and the moon is not available. And this is alluded to also in the verse in Tehillim, chapter 81, which we say every week in the song of the day for Thursday. Yeah, for Thursday. Um, it says, sound the, sound, the, sound the chauffeur in the month, Bakessa, when it is covered up. How is it covered up? Because it's talking about Rosh Hashanah, when the moon is not available. This is the day when the moon is looked for, but it, you can't find it because it's covered. And additionally, he says the word bakesa, which says that the moon is covered up, is also, well, the word bakesa just means covered up. It doesn't say what's covered up. So he's suggesting until now that means the moon. And he says, actually, it's alluded to in the word itself because the word bakesa is the gematria 67, which is the same gematria as the word sorry, 87, which is the same gematria as the word Levana, um, the gematria is 87. Okay, now I'm going to stop the class over here, and next week we'll continue about um, the Musaf, the three blessings of Musaf, and how they are integrated with Tkiyas Shreifer. I will just leave you, and if you want to take the source sheets home, you can do. On page 6 of your source sheets, I have reproduced from Chabad.org, two mishalim, two reasons for the blowing of the shofar, which are given by the Hasidic masters. The first one is by the Baal Shem Tov, and the second one is by Reb Levi Yitzchak of Adichav. Two reasons for, um, two additional reasons um, or um, parables to understand the sounding of the shofar and the Shoshana, and um, perhaps, I don't yet know, I haven't prepared all five parts of the series, but perhaps we'll get yet return to these two parables to um, analyze what they have to add and to teach to us. Thank you all for coming and Thanks welcome.